Hi guys, uh, welcome back to the Image Junkies podcast with me, Christian Parkinson, aka at Image Junkies. Hope you've been well. Sorry for the slight gap between the last episode and this one, but as always, life has a habit of getting in the way. And as I make no money whatsoever from this podcast, uh, sometimes it has to take a back seat. But we're back now, and I thought today we could have a look at a chapter from my book, uh, Camera Confidential, which is available on Amazon and also via um, my website. You can get the PDF. Go to imagejunkies.net and have a little route around there. But I wanted to talk about a particular chapter seven I thought might be really useful to read and discuss as we go along, which is War, Hostile Environments and Natural Disasters. So, who the fuck am I to talk about this stuff? Well, in fairness, I am by no means the most experienced war cameraman in the world. I've covered a few conflicts. I've worked in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Gaza, in Somalia, in Libya during the war, Um, post-election violence in Kenya, the war in Ivory Coast. So, I've, I've seen a little bit, by no means as much as many colleagues, but in my book, and in this chapter particularly, there's a lot of feedback and a lot of quotes from other cameramen and journalist friends, which I think will make up for the gaps in, in my own knowledge. So let's jump ahead. Uh, the, the chapter opens with a bit of an anecdote from me about the time we, we got surrounded and threatened and... I hesitate to use the word kidnapped, but a sort of mock arrest by Congolese soldiers who were basically uh, angry with me for filming them and ended up stealing our money and then dumping us at the side of the road. Long anecdote, but uh, suffice to say it was a pretty scary time. And although there was no bullets flying and there was no bombs going off, it was probably one of the more scary experiences of my career. But anyway, let's move on. So the first question I ask in the chapter is, is it worth it? Is it really worth covering hostile environments, conflicts, wars? In November 2010, the intrepid war reporter Marie Colvin said, covering a war means going to places torn by chaos, destruction and death and trying to bear witness. It means trying to find the truth in a sandstorm of propaganda when armies, tribes or terrorists clash. And yes, it means taking risks, not just for yourself, but often for the people who work closely with you. Our mission is to report these horrors of war with accuracy and without prejudice. Sadly, she was later killed covering the war in Syria in 2012. So going to war isn't something you should take lightly. When I was in my 20s, long time ago, it seemed like a great idea. The truth is I longed to feel the adrenaline of getting shot at. Churchill summed it up when he said that there's nothing as satisfying as being shot at without effect. Now I'm a little older with children, I no longer crave that excitement. Well, I do a little bit. I still cover conflict, but I'm much more aware of my own mortality and that I'm there to tell other people's stories, not to get myself killed. But saying that, I would never tell anybody not to cover conflict. I would, though, advise serious caution. Journalists are increasingly being seen as legitimate targets for, targets for arrest and murder. The blue flak jacket is no longer recognised as a sign of neutrality. Experienced security advisor and former Royal Marine Mike Heron has this advice for for any keen journalist wanting to cover war. He says, Young people are obviously keen to get amongst the action, but I'd advise them to be patient. The media agenda moves on quickly and they will get another chance to cover wars. There always seems to be another around the corner. You've also got to ask, how will your family feel? 
Before deploying to a war zone, you need to think not only about your own safety, but also the feelings of your loved ones. Do you want your wife, husband or parents to have to try to organise the repatriation of your mangled corpse from deep within Syria or somewhere else? No, not really. Me neither. The, paper lo- the paperwork alone would be a nightmare. We may think covering war is great fun. Our families may not see it that way. My mother cried her eyes out after seeing one of my news reports from Afghanistan when the British commandos I was with were shot at and had rocket-propelled grenades fired at them on Christmas Day. She knew it was me because the cue to the VT uh, included my name. The risks can be even worse if you're freelance. Many of the big news organisations supply body armour, medical training and security advisors to their teams in the field. If you're wounded or kidnapped, they have the contacts and logistical backup to get you home. Freelancers often work completely solo and have nobody to help them should the worst happen. They rarely have money for decent hotels, fixers and vehicles and are therefore more likely to find themselves in danger. I strongly advise freelancers to organise the best insurance they can get. It's not something I'm an expert on because I'm not freelance. But um, if you go to the Rory Pectrus, there is a page on high-risk insurance. If you're new to hostile environments, then you really should be looking to do a training course before deploying. In fact, many news organisations now require you to have hostile environments training before they can commission you. It's important that you check with both the news outlet and the training provider that the course you are planning to enrol on meets their criteria. There are a number of companies that run five-day courses covering battlefield first aid, dealing with checkpoints, kidnap advice, understanding musicians, munitions and many other things that will be useful in the field. Most of the instructors are ex-military and you can learn a lot from them. Again, if you go to rorypectrus.org, you'll find uh, a list of approved course providers. The Rory Pectrus do also offer funding and bursaries for uh, international freelancers. So do have a scroll through their website and see if you're eligible and how to go about applying. Jack Garland, a really talented and experienced cameraman and editor and friend of mine, has been covering a wide range of conflicts over the last few years. He says of his first course, My hostile environment and first aid training was brilliant for me in two main areas. The advanced first aid with its practical demonstrations complete with makeup and prosthetics and the live firing exercise. Distinguishing incoming and outgoing fire is such an important skill to learn. To be able to work safely in the field and training your ear a bit before being thrust in at the deep end is always good. And he's right there. On my first course, uh, we went into a, a shooting range, an outdoor range, and we went into the, I think they call it the butts below the targets. And you can really hear the difference between outgoing and ingoing, incoming rounds. So the that zipping sound, that's when you know things are getting a bit hairy. As Mike Heron says, any preparation that can be done is worth it. A hostile environments course can at least try and simulate some of the situations that media staff may come across. One thing that is for certain is that having basic medical skills can make a huge difference. There have been a number of deaths that could have been prevented with some basic knowledge, decent trauma dressings and slash aura tourniquet. And if you think you'll never need to put your training into action, then you may want to reconsider. I had a situation recently in Zimbabwe where despite my training, I still managed to fuck it up a little bit. Uh, You can see a previous podcast about that, to be honest. Uh, Jack Garland found his lessons useful within a very short time, as he told me. One day during the Ukrainian revolution last year, I was filming casualties who had been shot by snipers in Kiev. 
I began filming one guy who'd been hitting the thigh. He had two companions with him, one of whom was applying pressure to the artery in his groin, but the other was bizarrely trying to get the patient to drink water. I filmed them for a while and realised very quickly that the man was bleeding out. I put the camera down, cut his trousers off to find the exit wound and plugged it with a dressing. At that point, some real medics arrived and took over and I was able to go back to doing my job. I've no idea what the background of the guy was or whether he survived, but it was a spur-of-the-moment reaction on my part. And good for you, Jack. If you're listening, mate, uh, you're the sort of guy I would like next to me in a war zone. Thank you very much. So moving on. So in the danger zone is what I call this section of the chapter. There are no hard and fast rules for covering war. Each conflict is different with its own set of special circumstances. I've worked in numerous conflict situations and I'm still aware of how little I know and how situations can change in a heartbeat. As Glenn Middleton says, former guest on the podcast, if you go back through former episodes, the front line can move overnight. So when you go to sleep, you're on the side of the goodies. And when you wake up, you can find yourself on the side of the baddies. While covering the war in Liberia, the team and I were staying at the Mamba Point Hotel. Overnight, the rebels had moved into the car park of the hotel. At sunrise, they started shelling the other side. So, of course, that attracted incoming artillery. Needless to say, we missed breakfast. And it was funny that my taxi driver didn't pitch for work that day either. Preparation. One of the keys to successfully surviving a war zone is preparation. If and a big if here, you have enough notice before deploying, then read up on the place you're going. Become aware of who is fighting whom and why. Knowing which groups might be pro-Western or anti-Christian or against your particular organisation could save your life. Speak to people who have been there recently. Call contacts and friends of friends for the lowdown on how bad it is and what to expect. This is where keeping your own list of phone numbers and contacts can be invaluable. If you've not got any numbers, then check social media, use Twitter, use Instagram, see who's there and what they're saying. This goes without saying, but be sure to take a decent flak jacket and ballistic helmet. Even if you don't expect to get shot at, you never know when things could change. Once in country, I usually leave mine in the vehicle, but unpacked and ready to put on at short notice. Sometimes, you know, you do have to put them on before you get out of the car or even while driving in the car. But if there's not a high likelihood of being shot at in that particular location, I don't really like wearing it personally. But that's up to you and the team that you're with to make those calls. You do need to be aware, though, that some countries like Egypt, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Thailand, uh, Zimbabwe can take a dim view of body armor. Uh, and consider it military equipment. Now, if you're lucky, you might just get it confiscated, but I have heard of of crews being arrested for having it with them as well, so you need to be really careful. Um, I have been through, for example, uh, one or two of these places with body armour and have have hidden it uh, successfully. Uh, I took the ballistic plates out, hid them underneath the foam inserts in my cases uh, and wrapped the rest of the kit in clothes buried deep in my bags. It's not a foolproof method, but it could work. But um, if there's a chance of being arrested, then these days I wouldn't take that risk. Um, If it's a big organisation you work for, usually they'll already have some kit in country and you'll take it from the people you're taking over from or or similar. But again, that varies from organisation to organisation. So it's an extra conversation you need to have. Always make sure you've got a field dressing, you know, which is a big bandage with a large pad of absorbent cloth to slow bleeding. Keep that in the front pocket of your flak jacket. That's for you, not for anybody else. So if you get injured, you always know there's one there within reach. 
um, as well as your field dressing, you want to have a decent trauma kit that uh, a bare minimum should have, you know, tourniquets, more field dressings, a chest seal and a head torch. Sounds bizarre, but Murphy's Law says if you're going to have to deal with a casualty, it's probably going to be dark and pissing it down. Once you're in the hostile environment, it can be hard to predict where you'll be staying and what your accommodation will be like. I've covered wars from five-star hotels and I've had to sleep on the ground in tents. It really does vary. So it's worth keeping a grab bag with you for deployments that include items such as a lightweight travel towel, sleeping bag, sleeping bag liner. Um, I'll also use the sleeping bag or sleeping bag liner in shitty hotels, to be honest. Uh, I've been in many hotels where... I thought those sheets just do not look clean. <laughs> um, also an inflatable pillow. Um, excuse the interruption, a colleague. An inflatable pillow, a mosquito net. These are useful but can be hard to hang. Lots and lots of insect repellent. I used to take malarial drugs, but in recent years I began picking and choosing when I decide to take them. Um, long-term use isn't good for you, but I'm not a doctor, so you all have to decide what you want to do about malaria. I do have a few colleagues who have caught it recently, so I've suddenly become a bit more nervous about it again. I did hear, though, about a drug. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of it. I want to try and get hold of it called coartinin, um, which you, you take if you start to display the symptoms of malaria. So I want to look into that. It's meant to be really good, uh, and you can get it in some countries. So I'll do a bit more research on that. I also like to pack dried, fru- dried foods and rehydration salts. Uh, I've become dehydrated on a number of occasions. Ah, travel adapters. God, you can never have too many of those. Inevitably, your colleagues will have forgotten them. So the more you can have, the better. Solar charger for your phone is useful. I do have one. I haven't really had to use it, but it's it's good to have. Power inverter for your car, so you can run laptops from your vehicle's power socket. Um, it's also useful as in a lot of parts of the world, you know, the sockets you do have access to don't work, so it can be useful to be able to run it off a car battery. GPS tracker, well, in fairness, I don't always carry a GPS tracker with me, but I do have tracking apps on my phone, uh, so as long as I have some sort of network, which is becoming more and more common that even in the middle of nowhere you do have network, then loved ones or potentially my organization's high-risk high team can track where I am. I'll also keep, I don't always do this, but in a perfect world, a spare wallet with 10 or $20 and a couple of photos of you with your kids and loved ones. This is to hand over if you get robbed. A bit of cash will keep most casual robbers happy. And the photos, you never know, may make them think twice about shooting you in the head. You, you hope, probably not. Working with a local driver, I wrote a, a whole little section on this. So even in a war zone, remember one important fact you're more likely to be killed or injured in a road traffic accident than in a combat situation. So make sure that you choose a good driver with a solid and reliable vehicle. Before you hire a driver, have a quick check of his vehicle. Is it roadworthy? Does it have a spare tyre with a jack, etc.? And then another important question, particularly in Africa where I mainly work, is what, what tribe does the driver belong to? If you're planning on filming in the territory of a rival tribe, then you may want to reassess the ethnicity of your driver. This is often for their own good, as frankly, they'll be the ones who get it in their head, like literally. Um, It always helps if you can find a driver who speaks English, of course. If not, then try and make sure that you know a few local words of the language, you know, slow, fast, stop. Some drivers think you want them to drive fast all the time and then get confused and annoyed if you tell them to slow down. Also, the seatbelt issue, fuck me. 
How many times have I got into a vehicle where the seatbelts are inaccessible or just not even there? So I've had so many um, moments with drivers where I've had to get them to basically disassemble the back seat to try and find where the bloody hell the seatbelt's been stuffed because no one ever uses it. Okay, kit is certainly not your only concern when covering this type of conflict. You're often filming badly trained, poorly disciplined soldiers who generally don't really want you there. Once you reach the front lines, never rush into the thick of the action without first weighing up the dangers to yourself and the team. I personally wouldn't want to film combat without a flak jacket, preferably a helmet, although some of those can make filming a pain in the arse and I have taken them off, you know, uh, wrongly on a few occasions. I'd also prefer to latch on to a group of fighters whom I've introduced myself to and who are expecting my presence. Just turning up in the middle of a gunfight probably isn't a good idea, to be honest. Um, look at it from their point of view, like, you know, who the fuck are these random foreigners um, suddenly turning up? You know, you might be mistaken for the enemy. Checkpoints. Well, I've certainly seen my fair share of those. If you spend any amount of time in a war zone, you will quickly learn how prevalent the roadside checkpoint is. Having worked in Africa for a large part of my career, I've had to deal with plenty of these, manned by all sorts of intoxicated and angry characters. Some are as simple as a piece of string draped across the road, while others are spikes hammered into a piece of wood with heavily armed troops pointing their guns at you as you approach. A few basic rules when dealing with checkpoints are approach at a reasonable speed, don't drive fast because they may open fire, but don't drive too slow that you arouse suspicion. Have any relevant paperwork to hand. You don't want to be fishing around in a glove compartment as you approach in case they think you're looking for a weapon. Linked to that, actually, one tip that some people use at night, uh, which does make sense, is to put the interior light on as you approach so they can see who you are. You know, because for them, they're going to be nervous. And if they can't see who's in the vehicle, they're more likely to open fire. So I thought that's a good tip. Be friendly, but not permissive. Whatever happens, control your temper. Never shout. Make it clear who you are and what you're doing. Um, often they might ask for a little bit of money or some cigarettes. Well, different organizations have different rules about that. Different people have different rules about that. So I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. But let's just say if I've got some cigarettes, which I don't because I don't smoke. But let's just say for argument's sake I had a packet of cigarettes in my pocket and a bored soldier asked me for a couple, I'd give it to him. Yeah, fuck it, why not? Uh, especially you know, if it keeps him happy. The drawback with that is then everyone wants some, so you've got to weigh up that. Money, well, that's a bit more complicated. I I'd, I'd, uh, would never give money unless there was a real reason why it was imperative that I had to, like if my life was in danger or if there was, you know, big, big trouble brewing. But otherwise, cigarettes, I wouldn't have a problem with. A cold drink even, not a big issue, in my opinion. Uh, I made a note here, don't try to film without permission unless you're 100% certain you won't get caught and that the shots are a vital element of your film. I've done it. Uh, one example is we got searched at a checkpoint in Ivory Coast and I knew they were going to do it. Um, so what I did is I deliberately left the camera rolling but with the viewfinder unplugged so they wouldn't necessarily be able to see if they looked in the viewfinder that I was recording. And I just left the camera recording on the passenger seat pointing at the driver's door. And I got a nice shot of them sort of menacingly walking around the car and looking in the glove box and so on. So there are ways to do it. I've also had fights with correspondents about this, though, when they're like, quick, film these guys. And I'm like, no, 
you know, I'm not filming these angry, nervous guys at a roadblock as we approach. But a few times I've been surprised and I've pointed at the camera and sort of given a thumbs up and said, okay, and they've just sort of nodded and I've got some shots and they didn't seem bothered. So it can be really hard to tell what the atmosphere is going to be like at a roadblock. Um, but my go-to is don't film unless you've spoken to them uh, or built a rapport or you know you can get away with it. Uh, a little tip someone said they used in Syria is to use a dash cam recorder. Um, just that you would buy, you know, uh, in your high street store. I've not done this, but it sounds like a good idea. And they said they just left a dash cam rolling pretty much 24-7 and then that was also good should they be involved in a, a, a contact or something. They're, they're already recording and have some shots. I thought that was a good idea. I haven't done it, but I like the idea. If you trust your fixer, and generally you have no choice because you're only as good as your fixer, then listen to his or her advice. They may suggest... A, oh, this goes back to what I was saying. They may suggest a small gift of cigarettes to the soldiers or point out that the roadblock is only manned by drunk villagers who are best ignored. As a foreigner, it can be difficult to make that call. If you reach the battlefront and find yourself under fire, then your first thought should be, where's the fire coming from and where can I take cover? There's no point running into open space or towards the bullets. And yes, I know, I have done that before. You need to stay low and look for hard cover, i.e. solid walls, big trees. Never get caught between the two sides. That's the last place you want to be, in the middle of two groups shooting at each other. Even when there's no direct danger, always check that the soldiers around you have their weapon safety catches on. You'd be surprised how often negligent, negligent discharges happen in poorly trained armies. A good, very good point from top shooter Glenn Middleton again. If you're the only person travelling down a street, then you're probably in the wrong street. He's right, there's usually a good reason that it's empty. So I'm going to leave it there. The, the rest of the chapter does go on about embeds. Uh, there's some really good stuff from a guy called Mal Grease, who's an ex-army documentary filmmaker whose work is fantastic. Um, there's also more on first aid, but frankly, you're not going to learn that from a book, so you best get yourself some training. So I'm going to leave it there, but feel free to message me if you have any further questions or if you're about to go to a hostile environment and you want to have a chat about it. Uh, I'm at Image Junkies with an IES on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to buy the book. Um, it could probably do with an update now, to be honest, but I don't know if I can be bothered. But we shall see. Um, and keep in touch. Do, do tweet me. Do comment on my Instagram page. Do check out my website, imagejunkies.net. Uh, every other week, I think I'm going to pack this um, podcast in, and I kind of wait a bit and then decide to give it another go got a good one coming up um hopefully being joined by an ex-army friend of mine fellow cameraman and we're going to discuss uh cameramen in the first world war which i think will be really really good so do let me know if that interests you all right great stuff take care guys all the best and uh, safe shooting